Well, I invite you, if you'd like, to turn to John 17. John chapter 17, we're really going to be focusing this morning on verses 13 and a little bit of uh, 14. I may say uncle on myself <laughs> earlier than uh, normal here. There's uh, actually quite a bit in verse 13 itself on joy. Before we read uh, verses 13 down through 19, I invite you to uh, pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we are uh, delighted that you've given us this time as a congregation, together with churches all over the world, uh, to attend to your word. And we ask that as we hear it, we wouldn't just hear it and perceive it, but also uh, become doers of it. Doers in what we believe about you, doers as far as our deeds go, putting these things into action in our daily lives so that you can be glorified by us. And we pray that you'll then so pour out your Holy Spirit that these things would be so, and that Jesus Christ, your Son, would be exalted. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, John chapter 17, uh, beginning at verse 13. But, but now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. And just again, verses 13 uh, down to uh, 14. But now I am coming to you in these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So beloved congregation of hope and everyone listening this morning, uh, we're uh, walking through uh, what we could term uh, marks of a church, marks of a healthy church. Jesus has given uh, a glimpse into his heart for his people, his heart for his disciples who are the foundation of the church in his prayer to his heavenly father. This is called the high priestly prayer. Uh, there's nothing like it in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. It's recorded for us in John, a tremendous insight into Jesus' relationship with his father and what he desires for his people. Uh, not just us, he's going to, uh, beginning in verses 20, but even for his, the first disciples and thus for the church as a whole. And what I want us to sort of focus in on this morning uh, is uh, what is a health, what would it look like in the church if Jesus' prayers were answered and they are answered? What is a what does a healthy church look like? What is it? What are the marks of it or the characteristics of a healthy church? A church in which Jesus' prayers are being answered. And I want us to notice just several things. We'll maybe get through the first two or three this morning. Uh, a healthy church will be a, a church that's joyful. It'll be a church, secondly, that's hated by the world. It'll be a church, thirdly, that's present in the world, but also protected. It'll be also a church that's holy, a church that's sent, a church that's unified, and a church that is loved and also loving. So uh, all these are subject to change in the coming weeks, of course, as I uh, continue to study this passage. But uh, I, what I want us to look uh, at least this morning is a church that's joyful, hated, and then present and protected. So first, a church that is 
joyful. If you take a look at verse 13, Jesus prays, but now I am coming to you, coming to his father, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Now, what does this word joy mean? Uh, just on a surface definition level, it means cheerfulness, delight, or gladness. Now, it, it might be really easy to put an equal sign between joy and happiness, but I want to think for a moment uh, to try and clarify things because the world's definition of happiness and joy is going to be different than our definition. The world's happiness is based on external circumstances, how life is going, how, how I'm feeling. Uh, and, and again, we as Christians have feelings too, and our lives go certain ways, and we are thankful when things are going well. I'm not discounting that at all. But the joy which Jesus talks about and the joy that is spoken of all throughout the Bible is more than a fleeting emotion based on external circumstances. It's something that is deep-seated and rooted inside every single believer, and it's part of the warp and woof of the church itself. It's not based on an external circumstance, but is actually based on our relationship with God, what he's done for us and what is coming our way in the future. And it provides in, for us in this life a buoyancy, as it were, when the tsunami of life comes rolling over our head, it doesn't extinguish joy. We'll have to fight for joy. We'll have to obey the command to rejoice in the Lord always. That'll take work. But joy as a fruit of the Spirit is not extinguished in our lives, though the light may dim a little bit. It's something created inside of us that we carry through our entire life, uh, no matter how things are going on the outside. And what I want us to notice in this passage is there's actually two sources of joy here. The first source of joy is found in these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy. Catch that. These things I speak in the world so that they may have joy. So if you get rid of these things, all of a sudden there's no joy. If you provide these things for the disciples and for the church, then it's possible that we can have joy. What are the these things? Well, you can say that these things are what Jesus has already prayed for in the high priestly prayer. Or you can say that these things is the upper room discourse beginning in chapter 13 and following. You could say that these things is this whole earthly ministry. But that would have been for the disciples in particular. For us sitting here in the new covenant on this side of the, the resurrection and the ascension, the these things has to do with all of God's word. It's the things that Jesus has revealed about God personally to his disciples right there in the flesh. He is the word incarnate but also the things he's spoken to them in the upper room discourse, things concerning he's going to go away. The Holy Spirit's going to come. He's going to be a helper. More marvelous things will happen when Jesus is gone than when he stays here because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And that he's the way back to the Father. All of those things are what the disciples need to know and the church needs to know in order for us to have joy. So the word of God is necessary for our joy. An explanation of the way things are, an explanation of who God is, how we even came to be as a universe, what's our purpose in this life, how do we get rid of this nagging sensation that something's wrong, that our relationship with God is not what it should be, that the way to have it restored is through Jesus Christ, his son, and that outside of Jesus, there is no hope, there is no comfort, there is no peace, there is no joy, but in Jesus, all of that can be found. And then afterwards comes eternal life in him. 
a life of pure blessedness, a life that we're all longing for to be here right now, and we wish we're here now, but we're having to wait for patiently as we wait for the Lord's decree and purposes to unfold and end in heaven. So if we fly through life apart from the word of God, we will discover as believers that our joy will likely fade. If we fly through life without any devotional life with the Lord, and I'm not talking about, oh, I've, I have to spend an hour doing Bible study a day and reading my Bible. Uh, sometimes hiding the word in our hearts and meditating on those things is tremendously helpful for our joy. Not just the motions of reading the Bible, but thinking it through and carrying it with us. Maybe a passage we've memorized, whatever the case may be. But if we discard the truths of the Bible from the life of our mind and from feeding our souls, we will discover that joy is going to fade. That comfort, that peace, that joy, that deep-seated joy. And we might discover it's almost nearly entirely gone if we encounter adversity. And we discover that we don't have any joy. We never did. We were just happy regarding how life was going. And now that life isn't going the way we want it to go, we're no longer happy and we've never really had much joy. I want to bring this home for us as uh, believers because I, I don't want any of us to sit here and think, oh yeah, I have to paint a happy face on the outside. That's, that's not what any of us should be doing. In fact, if that's what we're doing, I would encourage every one of us to stop it. That's not joy. That's just being fake. And we can all do it. If you're like me, you've done it before, you've done it plenty, you've got to work against that. But I want us to imagine a scenario. If in the midst of our life, in the midst of all the busyness of our callings and our work and our family lives and our neighborly lives or whatever's going on in our lives, our hobbies, God had opened up the heavens and parted them and had declared unequivocally, univocally, loud and clear for you to hear and for me to hear you are righteous in my son. All of your sins are pardoned. You are a pardoned person. You are now have adopted into my family and you have all the rights and privileges of being a child of mine. You have an inheritance that belongs to my son, Jesus, that he's earned and you're going to share in that. He did the work. You benefit from the work free of charge. You have eternal life to look forward to. Right now, for a little while, you will suffer and you will go through trials and difficulties and you will have to grow in holiness and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But that is a very short time. And after that will come glory that lasts forever. If God parted the heavens and told us that, beloved, how would that change everything about how we view life? How would that affect us when we go through tremendous difficulty or if our lives are just boring and ordinary, nothing really positive or negative about it, or if we're going through tremendous success and we're tempted to find our happiness in that success? I submit to you, it would change everything because it would put all of our lives in perspective, wouldn't it? Oh, this is short. Oh, these successes I'm enjoying are a gift from God, but they're not the greatest thing. They'll fade. They certainly can't satisfy my heart. Oh, these sins that I've committed, they're not the end of the world because I believe in a God who forgives. And I can go to him in repentance, admitting my failures, and I can seek forgiveness and he provides it in his son. Beloved, it's a game changer. That's what joy is based on. Our joy is based on what's found in the word, the truths found 
in the Word of God. It's changed this joy, this perspective regarding what is true of us in Jesus Christ will change the way we lose a loved one or go through difficulty at work or undergo sickness or illness or when we file for bankruptcy or when we're disappointed in our political leaders or when we have success in the world. These truths about us that are true of us in Christ will change, beloved, how we go through every life circumstance. And Jesus prayed that his disciples would have this joy. He wants his church to have this kind of joy. Pella has a theology of blessedness that is so often and so much based on how life in this world goes that it's easy to start to believe that true joy is a product of how our life is going. I'm happy because I have a great family. I'm happy or I'm joyful because my kids are successful. I'm joyful because my job is great. I'm happy because I have enough money to retire on. I'm happy because I have great medical insurance and can live comfortably. I'm happy because I've made really good decisions and haven't blown up my life with horrible sins. You know, the really big ones that make the paper. Not only does this not satisfy, beloved, but what happens when one of those things falls off the rails and we do end up doing something that has brought misery into our life? We'll discover that that is not a source of joy. Thankfulness to God on account of his blessings in our lives, we should all have that. But this kind of joy that transcends how life is going, that looks to a different kingdom, to another world, to a God who can't be seen with our naked eye, who's done for us incredible things, spiritual things that are going to become a physical reality for us someday in heaven. Looking to him, that's where joy comes in, beloved, all the way down into our hearts and souls. True joy is the product of being saved by God, having eternal life to look forward to, resting our heart and soul in this, and drinking deeply of this as a believer. Are you drinking deeply of this? Jesus prayed that we be a people, that his church would be a place of what? Joy, that's quite incredible, beloved, that this is Jesus' concern for his church before he goes to the cross. Now, for those who don't know the Lord, maybe we are one, maybe we know people who are, I'm sure we know people who are, there is no way to have this kind of joy apart from Jesus Christ because your life is lived under the wrath of God, his anger against your sin that is being displayed small ways but will one day be unfolded in its infinite uh, uh, existence, unless you turn to Jesus. If, you, if, this, if it's true of you that you have God's unconditional love in his son and he cares for you and he will give you eternal life, then you have a reason for joy. But if you don't believe in Jesus and it's not true of you that you're a child of God in this adopted sense, this redemptive sense, then you actually have no reason for joy. I mean, I mean zero. You have reason for hopelessness, you have reason for despair. And if you look at reality, you have reason to, 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 to do all manner of things that are negative and horrible because you know life will end in death and you know your circumstances can change. And so I urge you, I strongly encourage you to believe in Jesus and come to know this incredible joy that is available for every single human being. The second source of our joy is not just these things, but also notice, so that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Now, this is interesting language. Jesus calls this not just so that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves, but my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus is talking about his joy. 
Now, we're not told what Jesus' joy is. We know if we turn to Hebrews 12, we're told that there was joy that was set before him. And that future joy caused him or enabled him or strengthened him to endure the cross and despise the shame that, that was associated with the cross that he underwent for us. But if you look at the passage before us, Jesus is at peace and contented regarding what? His relationship with his father. That this fellowship he has with his father, this not only prayer life, but this incredible relationship and fellowship that's begun in eternity, that's always existed from all eternity, and that he's feeding on now, that's a source of joy for him. So we're not told exactly what the nature of Jesus' joy is. What, what joy is Jesus talking about in particular? We don't know. But if you look at his high priestly prayer, if you listen to what he's been talking about through his upper room discourse, we can make a very good case that the joy he's speaking up is, is the joy that comes from his relationship with his father, having that incredible closeness and fellowship with his father. I want us to notice, though, two things that we can know for sure, and that is Jesus has joy. That number one, he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He didn't necessarily walk around the countryside with a smile painted on his face, and yet we're told he has joy. That coming to do the will of the Father, just hours away from the cross now, and the ultimate betrayal, and everything that that entails for him, all that suffering, being forsaken by his Father, he has joy at this moment. He knows what's coming his way. That's quite profound, that our Lord and Savior has this kind of joy. Jesus' earthly ministry was not a ministry of curmudgeonliness, of dourness, of sourness, of animosity. Jesus' earthly ministry was a ministry of joy. He delighted to come and do his Father's will. It, it was very hard to do his Father's will. He was joyful in the midst of it. And the second thing we know that not only that Jesus has joy, but that Jesus' joy is available for believers. Again, if you look at verse 13, catch what he prays, so that they may have my joy. So the joy Jesus speaks of here is Jesus' joy being transferred to his disciples. So the joy that Jesus has, he wants that to become the joy that his disciples have as well. And what I find fascinating is that this joy isn't necessarily something that's automatic. He prays that we may have it, which means what? It's possible to live as a Christian in such a way that we don't have much of it. In other words, Jesus' prayer involves us working toward joy or working on our joy, as it were. So I'll get to that in just a moment. What I want us to think about a few things as we uh, park on this. Joy is a reality Jesus prayed for in his disciples, for his disciples, and thus for the entire church. And we can often speak of the marks of a true church, right? Preaching of the gospel, administration of the sacraments faithfully, and then exercising church discipline. Those are marks of a church. But what Jesus talks about here is also a mark of his church, a mark of his people, that they are a people who have joy. What, what ought to be characteristic of life in a local church? Joy. What is to be characteristic of believers all throughout our lives? Joy is to be characteristic of our lives. Now, I realize there are some Christians, there might even be some churches which teach that the mark of Christian maturity is dourness, sourness, seriousness, taking ourselves so seriously, pride that is masqueraded as, wow, I've really got a purpose and I'm really devoted to the Lord, but it's really just joyless. 
And that's paraded so often as Christian maturity. Oh, this person never smiles. They must be mature. (laughs) This church never really sings. This church has no delight in the Lord. That must be Christian maturity. Beloved, that's Christian immaturity. That's not Christian maturity. Now, to be sure, we might go through seasons of pain and difficulty where we hurt and we're crying. That doesn't mean the joy is gone because this joy lasts through crying. This joy can go through a tsunami like waves washing over David in the Psalms, and it's still there. Beloved, what is characteristic, what is supposed to be characteristic of churches all over the place, not just hope, but Christian churches all over the world, is this deep-seated joy. Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Those aren't meaningless words, beloved. (laughs) The inspired word of God talking about joy in the lives of God's people. Joyful Christians are often portrayed as fake people. Sometimes those who are good at hiding or masking their unhappiness. Sometimes joyful Christians are paraded around and made fun of as blessed people, those whose lives are so blessed as to be disconnected from reality, and that's why they're joyful. Sometimes they're portrayed as optimistic or happy in personality. It's just who they are. It's just their personality. And to be sure, there are those of us believers who may be good at masking our real selves, who are incredibly blessed and find happiness in that blessedness, and who are just happy in personality. But a believer who has true joy will be joyful regardless of those things. And we'll be able to go through life real. Yeah, it hurts. I cry. Still joyful. Still so thankful for who I am in Jesus Christ. But this is really painful. And I've got tears in my eyes. And I'm having a real hard time with this. And I need some folks to talk to and others to help me through this difficulty. And I'm going to spend a lot of time in prayer. But I'm still so thankful that this is coming to an end. Right? Joy that has like the uptick at the end of it. Very difficult but I'm not going to despair. And to be sure, some of us are incredibly blessed. Christians all over the world undergo this incredible blessedness in life. Some of us will go through life with very very little sickness, less difficulty than other believers, and that's incredible. But we're not finding our joy in it, hopefully. We're finding our joy in what God has done for us in Christ. We're thankful for the life God's given us, but our joy, what, what carries us through life, isn't based in outward circumstances. It's based in what God's done for us in Jesus and what's coming our way in heaven. So joyful Christians are often portrayed as fake, disconnected from reality. But actually, if we have joy, we will be those who look different than the rest of the world. If we have genuine joy, we will walk through circumstances very much different than the world walks through them. And then one more thing I want us to notice is that joy is so important in the lives of believers that it's actually a fruit of the Spirit. Or maybe because it's a fruit of the Spirit, it's very important in our lives. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. I oftentimes have running through my head this hypothetical interview when I find myself having to fight for joy. And I heard this years ago from a pastor in a sermon, and it's always stuck with me, where I'm being interviewed in my bad attitude by a non-Christian, and this interview helps. And it goes something like this, how is... How's work going? But not great. Yeah, it's difficult. It's dragging me down. I don't feel fulfilled in it at all. I wish I could find another job. 
And the unbeliever says, oh, aren't you the people that believe that work bears thorns and thistles and that by the sweat of your brow you'll eat bread? How, why are you not expecting that to be the case? Aren't you the people that believe that all your labor for the Lord is not in vain? Yeah, I guess, I guess that's true. <laughs> so aren't you supposed to be joyful even in your work? Yeah, I am. Well, I heard all the misery, but I haven't heard any uptick in joy. Note to self. Hey, how is your perspective on the future going? Well, it's pretty bleak. I don't like the direction of the country I'm living in, wherever that country is. I don't like the direction of the church as a whole. I don't necessarily like how my life is panning out and what's ahead for my life. It doesn't look like I'm going to accomplish any of the goals I had when I was 20. Hey, aren't you people, the folks that believe that there's eternal life coming your way? You're going to have an inheritance that is given to you. You're meek. You will inherit the whole earth. Uh, isn't that what you people believe? Yeah, it is. Shouldn't that change how you view the future? Yes, it should. Note to self. How are you doing today? Miserable. It's been a horrible day. Work's a mess. I feel terrible. I'm frustrated by my circumstances in life, and I just wish the day would end. Hey, aren't you people supposed to be those people who are joyful? Joyful in the midst of difficulty, even counting it all joy when you encounter various trials. I read that somewhere in a book, I think, called James. Isn't that supposed to be characteristic of you people? Yes. And I preach to myself that way because joy is something we're going to have to fight for and work on, beloved. It's not something that comes automatically. Or how's this one? How is your moral life going? You know, I've really blown it. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against so many people. I've just committed the unforgivable sin. I shouldn't be allowed to live anymore. There's no way I can make up for this train wreck that I have caused. Like life is just miserable. Hey, aren't you people, aren't you the people that believe in a God who forgives? Don't you believe in a God to whom you're reconciled by believing in Jesus' son and his blood cleanses you from all sin, covers all of your sins? Don't you believe that? Well, yes. Well, it doesn't seem like you really believe that. Again, note to self. Yeah, am I actually feeding on this? Or have I allowed the world's version of God or my own distorted version of God who rewards and loves the people who are really making a great go of it and never really mess up much? Am I allowing that distorted view of God to overtake what is actually true of God? That he's a God of forgiveness and he's a God of cleansing and he's a God of hope through Jesus Christ. So something to help our joy. And one more thing before we move on. The joy spoken of here is something which is not automatic, but which is necessary to work for. Verse 13 again, that they may have my joy. It's possible to live the Christian life without a whole lot of joy. I can't say enough that this joy doesn't mean painting a smiley face on our faces. It doesn't mean going through life fake. It doesn't mean acknowledging difficulty weeping with those who weep and having a ministry to people who are going through difficult circumstances and we really care for them and it's just hard. It doesn't mean that we don't, uh, that we just fake our way through that. Oh, everything's going fine. How's life? It's incredible. It's awesome. It just means that when we go through that, that yeah, it's difficult, but we still have hope. We do have hope. I don't see a way forward, but God knows the way forward. I don't see how any good's going to come of this, but my father knows more than I do thankfully. And he knows there's going to be good come of this and he'll glorify himself. And this is for my good, though actually the, the opposite of what I'm going through, I think would be better for me. 
Joy is something we're going to have to work through, beloved, to have genuine joy. It's commanded, Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. That's a command. Again, I will say rejoice. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always. The prayer Jesus prays is something we need to be working toward as believers. Joy is available. We're commanded to rejoice and to be glad in the Lord. Notice, rejoice in the Lord always. There's never a time when we can't rejoice in the Lord. So the first mark of a church, a healthy church, a church Jesus praying for is joy. The second mark that I want us to notice is in verse 14, the church is hated. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I want to just let this very simple point sink in for a moment. The church in the world will be a hated group of people, hated by the world. A faithful, true church will experience hatred from the world. This has always been the case in the world ever since sin entered the world. It began back, Cain and Abel, 1 John 3, 12 to 14, we should not be like Cain who is of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Why? Because, catch that, beginning of verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. What happens when we're given the word and it takes root in our lives by the Holy Spirit? We become a changed people. We become a people who are dedicated to God, not to the ways of the world. We become a people who are no longer defined by political party, by how much money we have, by how popular we are, by our careers, by our family life. We become a people who are defined by belonging to a kingdom that's not seen. We're no longer first citizens of America, we're citizens of heaven. And when the world sees that, it can't wrap its mind around it and it hates us because we call sin, sin, because we have to. We're required to do this because we know it's not, not only is it true, our king tells us what the truth is. And so when we go out into the world as people who've been changed by the word, in our doctrine, in our life, in the way we love, the world is gonna look at that and just like it hated the disciples, it's gonna hate the church in general. You can see it all over the newspaper. Today, you can see it in every generation. There's nothing new going on under the sun here in America. It's been taking place all throughout the centuries. Oh, they believe this about sexual ethic and how you're supposed to behave yourself, male and female, only in, uh, unless you're in marriage. And then, and then you can partake of this outside of that. You can't. Oh, that's so hateful. That's so miserable. Let's, let's snuff these people out. And our ethic regarding Jesus as the only way. Oh, that's so, that's so nasty. How dare they say that, right? The world hates what the church stands for in the Bible. And the more we tell others about it, about Jesus Christ as the Savior, the more we live lives before the world that are markedly different than the world and stand for truth and love the marginalized, the more we do that, beloved, the more the world will hate the church. If the church is faithful in these things, we will be hated. Just keep that in mind. Keep that in mind as we live because it's so easy as a church to say, hey, we're gonna change what we believe yeah, Jesus isn't necessarily the only way. We'll just push that to the wayside. Regarding how we're called to live sexually, that's not that big of a deal. Regarding how we're called to use our time and money, we'll just push that by the wayside. It's so easy for the church to say, nope, these things are unimportant so that the world will love us 
It's easy to understand that impulse, isn't it? Because we don't want to be hated and persecuted and killed for our faith. We don't want to be fired from our jobs for believing in Jesus and following him faithfully. We don't want to be kicked out of our families. Beloved, Jesus isn't looking for people. He hasn't called people to follow him to a comfortable life. He's looking for people to die. He's looking for people who will die in order to follow Jesus, who will die to ourselves and if need be, give our lives in order to follow him, pick up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow him all the way. So don't be surprised when the world hates us. That's been the course of world history. It will continue to be the case that the world hates the church. And we'll see how that works itself out specifically. It will continue to be the case until Jesus comes again. And then finally, the church is present and protected. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So the concept here is really simple. It's actually really profound as well. Jesus did not pray to his father, Father, take these disciples and take all newly regenerated people out of this world as soon as you give them a new heart. The moment they're justified, zap them to heaven. Time war, just get them out of here. He didn't pray that. He prayed, Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. In other words, Father, keep them in the world. I'm not asking that you take them out. Keep them here. The church is an institution designed by God to operate, the church militant, to operate in this world, beloved. No matter where we live, in countries all over the world as the gospel goes out and spreads. That is the role of the church. Now, there's a kind of Christianity which seeks to sort of create a heaven on earth where we can kind of withdraw into ourselves and create this little holy huddle, not just in our churches, but in society. And it says the way the church thrives best is by changing all the civil laws and making the town or the city or the state or the country in which we live to obey all of God's commands. And that's what it is to be the best Christian in the world. What that is, is a desire, which again, we can all understand, to have heaven on earth. To not go out into the world to influence the world as far as, hey, we want to see people come to Jesus. But it's to say, hey, we're just going to keep to ourselves so we can live pain-free until we get to heaven where we'll be even more pain-free. Jesus hasn't called us to do that. Father, don't take them out of this world. I'm not asking you to take these out of the world. No, we're in the world, beloved. We're in Pella. We're in Des Moines, we're in Chicago, we're in Los Angeles, we're in Singapore, we're in Russia, we're in Poland, we're in Japan, we're all over the world, in the world, part of it. Not partaking of the world, not following the course of the world and the ways of the world, but we are citizens of a country somewhere. I'm guessing all of us here are American citizens, we're in this. It's not the be all and end all of who we are, but we're in it. So what does Jesus pray then? Jesus' prayer is that we be kept from the evil one or kept from evil. Uh, Along the lines of the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one or from evil. Same, Same language there. So Jesus' prayer is that, hey, as my people, as my church remains in the world and the gates of hell will not prevail against it as they beat down that door to advance my kingdom, just keep them from evil. Keep them to be a people that are dedicated to me. Keep them from being sifted like wheat. Keep them walking in my ways. Keep them in repentance. Keep them in faithfulness. Preserve them all the way to the end so that Satan doesn't have his way with them while they're in the world. So beloved, let me ask 
you have been asking myself this question as well. Ask me as well right now. Is our number one concern to live a godly life in the midst of the world, living a life of joy and gladness for what Christ has done for us as we work and as we neighbor? Or is our number one concern in this world to just create an alternative world where life is really awesome on earth and where we're not really in the world, but we're in sort of a quasi-Amish community where we don't have to deal with all those wicked people out there who are really difficult to deal with and who are totally depraved like we used to be until the Lord showed up in his grace. And we don't really want to be about the work of Jesus' kingdom, loving our enemies, which is very hard work. Loving people who hate you. Jesus did it for us. We hated him. And we put him on the cross. And we told him to go away. And he loved us when we were his enemies. And now he says, I don't pray that you take them out of the world. Just keep them from evil. Keep them from falling into all the devil's traps and preserve them all the way to the end. What's our goal? What are we hoping for? Beloved, this joy that Jesus prays for should permeate our whole life. It's a mark of belonging to the church. It's just gladness that he's delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and he's given us a future and that is coming. It'll be here so quickly. Remember Craig Troxell saying in the marriage conference, what's my job as a pastor? To get people prepared to die. Beloved, our life here is so short. That's what we're all getting prepared for, right? To die to die and to go before the judgment seat of Christ. And we do that as we're just walking through this life with joy, knowing that Jesus has prepared us to go before that judgment seat. He's given us eternal life. That ought to create in us just a buoyancy, a delight to serve him while we yet have life. Let's pray.